Oh, man. You guys doing good today? You having a good weekend? I don't know about y'all, but I'm beat. I'm, I, I had a big day yesterday. Uh, it, my mom turned 80 years old yesterday, and we, we had a celebration for her, so it was fun. got to hang out with the family. Yeah, she, she's, uh, she's lived 80 years old. God bless her. She's uh, doing really good for 80, I think. And uh, at the last minute, I got, I got roped into doing a wedding right after the birthday party. My nephew decided to get married, so I, got, I had that going on. So there's that. So, yeah, I'm... I, and I never sleep on Saturday nights anyway, so I'm, I'm, I'm running on fumes. I need you all to help me out. Keep me going today. We're, we're wrapping up the uh, final week of our uh, Down to the River teaching series. And I don't know about you guys, but I just absolutely love this teaching series. I just think it's been powerful. I've learned so much, uh, so much that I can use and apply in my own life. I mean, we've been looking at this water theme and how Scripture uses water at different times and different ways to teach us about the nature of God, Right? We've seen God show his glory and his power in ways like uh, the parting of the Red Sea and the, and the Jordan River. We've seen the healing properties of God's presence like in the story of Naaman. Uh, we've seen the redemptive nature of God on display when Jesus models the act of baptism in the Jordan River. And we saw God's provisional nature last week in, in the ways that he places rivers in the wasteland. Water is such a crazy thing anyway, isn't it? When you think about it, it's such a powerful force, yet at the same time it can be so peaceful. I mean, people travel long distances just to be close to the water so they can enjoy the tranquility and the peace that comes with being close to, like, the ocean, for example. Where's Justin at? Justin just got back from Florida, so he's been down, you know, enjoying the water, uh, traveling long distances to be with family. I just wanted to mention him this morning because, if you didn't know, Wait, wait. If you didn't know, Justin doesn't pay attention to the sermon. He leaves the room, apparently. <laughs> Did you find him? I want to celebrate this morning because as of, he hasn't been here in a while. As of a few weeks ago, I don't know what day it was, Justin is officially a United States citizen. Congratulations. You want to do the national anthem? Oh, okay. Okay. You want to sing it? I can do the British one. <laughs> you do the Pledge of Allegiance? Yeah. <laughs> one of my favorite people in the world right there. Congratulations, Justin. But anyway, yeah. Water is a, is a, a, a peaceful thing. It, it's also um, a, a very destructive force, right? I mean, there's, there's like we're experiencing now with the flood and stuff in eastern Kentucky. And we, you'll hear some more information offered to how we can help with that in the newsflash. I don't want to spend too much time on that, but... We were playing a show down in, in Salvisa, Kentucky, right on the Kentucky River. And um, I, I didn't realize it until Vance brought it to my attention. But the river was floating people's belongings downstream. It, it wasn't debris. This was people's stuff. I mean, it was toys and, and, and clothes and, and just things that belonged. Th these were once in someone's house. And every item, I'm sure, has a story. Every item had... An origin. It was just really, really tough to watch. Floods, hurricanes, tsunamis, water can be such a force. And water is used so much in Scripture with, with imagery and symbolism. I mean, we could have literally turned this into a 12-week study easily. It's everywhere in Scripture. Like, for example, this passage 
in Amos 5.24, where water is compared to the justice of God. What a powerful text this is. Now, the scripture has absolutely nothing to do with where we're going today. I just really felt like I needed to fit it in there somehow because I really wanted an excuse to do that song. <laughs> this is what happens when you put me in charge. But I love this passage, so I wanted to share it. But I am excited about our teaching today. I, am, I have just been really looking forward to this all week because everything that we've talked about leading up to this moment, these last few weeks, is, have all been about leading up to where we are right now. But far deeper than that, as we look at Scripture through the lens of this water, of this river metaphor, it offers, at least for me, I hope it does for you, it offers this whole new perspective, and we can, we can gain this fresh appreciation for the beauty of the text, the foreshadowing, the, the consistent elements of how everything gets tied together, from the ancient scrolls of the Hebrew, Hebrew Scripture to the uh, the more recent Gospels and apocalyptic literature that's, uh, in, that we find in the New Testament. If there was ever any doubt in your mind as to the connection of the Old Testament and the New Testament, I hope if I do my job right today, you can walk away with a brand new perspective and understanding. Folks, today we are going to travel from Genesis to Revelation. Mm. We have got a lot of ground to cover, so buckle up tight. We're going quick. We're going to take a ride down the river of life, and we're going to start our trip in the book of Revelation at the very last chapter in your Bible. So if you brought your Bible, it's easy to find. Go to the very last page and go backwards, past the maps, past your concordance till you get to the very last chapter of the book of Revelation in chapter 22. And just kind of put your finger there for a minute because i got to set this up because Revelation is a tricky book. Let me apologize in advance for every time I refer to Revelation as revolution. <laughs> that seems to be a common thing with me. Revelation is considered apocalyptic literature, okay? It shares this definition with other biblical books that are found in the Bible, like the book of Daniel. Uh, there's elements of it found in the prophetical books of Joel, Zechariah, and Isaiah, just to name a few. Now let's pause and talk about this word, apocalypse. Because our culture and our time today, we, we see this word apocalypse and we immediately want to, to apply this definition of apocalypse being something related to end time, something related to the end of the world. That's because that's kind of what we've been brought up to understand it as. The truth of the matter is, though, the Greek word apocalypse does not mean end of the world. It means literally revelation. Okay? The word apocalypse means to uncover, to reveal, all right? So the, the, <clears throat> these apocalyptic writings contain within them these revelations and these visions from God. Now, it's important for me to let you know that there's different views. You don't need me to tell you this. There's different views. Uh, there's different interpretive camps, if you will, that see the contents of these revelations differently. Some of them see them as a foreshadowing uh, of events that are, that are coming up, that are lead up to the end of the world, while, while others see these revelations as a cryptic way of communicating during volatile times. In the case of Revelation, during that time, okay, there was a lot of Roman persecution happening in the first century church. It's important also for us to understand that these differing views on the interpretation or these attempts at interpretation of Revelation and other apocryphal literature as well 
by no means are considered to be essential matters of our faith. Now let me tell you what I mean by this. Perhaps you've heard the phrase, in essentials, unity, in non-essentials, liberty, and in all things, charity. All right? It's been attributed to John Wesley, and some think it might have come from St. Augustine. Don't really know who said it for sure, but I think there's wisdom in that. It's up to us to try to, de- to decide what is considered essential. The virgin birth? Yeah, I'm, I'm going to say that's essential. But something that is so hard to decipher and to understand like the book of Revelation, if we, if we consider this to be a, an essential part of our faith, then, then I think that's a hill that we probably might not want to die on, if, you know, if that, that makes any sense to you. Even John Wesley, the founding father of the United Methodist Church, even admits, if we can go to the next slide, that he by no means pretends to understand or explain all that is contained in this mysterious book. And he's talking about the book of Revelation. So I think it's, if it's okay for Wesley to admit that, it's okay for me to admit that. Now he did go on to say, however, that the beginning and the end of Revelation seemed pretty clear to him, which is good news for us because we're at the end. All right? Now, here at the end of this book, we're not going to read all three chapters, but the last chapters of the book of Revelation, we find ourselves closing out the story in God's final victory, and we are given a lens to experience this victory with John as shown to him by the angel. There is still a lot of imagery here, however, to parse through. John the Revelator, as he's come to be called, has been exiled to the island of Patmos, Most believe this happened during the time of the Roman Emperor Domitian. During this time, like I said, the persecution for the Christian church was really gaining speed and traction. This is why John was exiled. Many people that were exiled to Patmos were exiled because they were being persecuted. It's like a a prison island, like Australia. (laughs) Patmos was a prison island where they sent Christians. That was a delayed response, wasn't it? And, and because this was happening, this, this first generation of Christians was really getting concerned because they're still waiting for the return of Jesus, and it hadn't happened yet. And now Christians, that first generation, are starting to die off. So they're starting to lose steam. They're starting to lose hope. So they needed the hope that is offered, and Revelation gave them that. The book opens up easily enough with seven letters to seven churches, basically saying this is the things that that you're doing right from Jesus. This is the things that you're doing right. These are the things that you need to work on. But what happens next throughout these next few chapters has created so many different views and arguments and debates and opinions, exegetical analysis. Revelation is filled with so much imagery and symbolism. So much of it is still so mysterious. Scholars have gone back and forth on the meaning and the intent of these next few chapters for centuries. And so we're not going to dive into that today. But to get you to where we need to go, I need to just let you know this. Revelation walked John into the city of God, and it gave him a glimpse of what victory tastes like. John captured this vision. He he writes it down, and he shares it with the church. He shares it with the people of God. Because they needed the hope, especially the people that time. But we needed too. They needed to hear it. They needed the hope that Revelation offers. Now, here in chapter twenty-three, or excuse me, twenty-two, this is a continuation 
of the angel's revelation to John entering into the new holy city of Jerusalem. Okay, this actually starts back in chapter 20. We just don't have time to read it all. We have so much to cover, so we're going to have to get through it quick. If you go back and read, you'll begin to see John's vision shift from a vision of a world of sin and corruption that started in chapter 17 to a world where Christ is victorious and a new heaven and earth is ushered in. All right, I, I apologize for the, for, the, for the wordy preface to, for how long it takes to set this up, but like I said, Revelation is tricky, and I just want to make sure that we're all following. Are we all tracking here so far? All right, Debbie, can you help me out? You want to read with me? All right, let's do it. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life, with its 12 kinds of fruit. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it. Servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. And night will be no more. They will need no light, lamp, sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. Sorry, there must be some inconsistencies there with the translation. Yeah. Usually I would read from my, well, you get it. <laughs> so let's, let's break this down. Take me, take me to this next slide. All right. The angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. Now, let's, let's pause right there. If you don't catch this, this is a beautiful Trinitarian image, okay? The river of life that flows from God and of the Lamb, this is the Holy Spirit, okay? This, this is a symbol that is being used, and this is consistent throughout our, our, our Scripture. We're going to see this more today. You'll see what I'm talking about. But this is a, a, a view of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit being the river of the water of life and God and, and of the Lamb. Now, it's important for us to embrace this Trinitarian concept, especially today, because a lot of these roles are going to be somewhat interchangeable as we pass down this river this morning and we, and we take a look at some of these other texts. But we see God and the Lamb. Who's the Lamb? All right. We are going to lean on our Sunday school training today, so I'm going to offer some prizes here. Who said Jesus? First one. I'm rating Rachel's, Rachel's candy stash from Easter. Now, I may or may not have ate one of these just to make sure I hadn't gone stale this morning. May or may not. Congratulations. Yeah, Jeff, that was an easy one, though. Jesus is the Lamb of God. Through, now, notice, notice here that it, it doesn't say from the throne of God and of the throne of the Lamb. It says of the throne of God and of the Lamb. So they're one. Okay, they're united. This is one throne, God and Jesus, and then the river flows from the source, which is both of them. All right? Through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river, both sides of the river, the tree of life. Now, stop right there. Where have we seen the tree of life before? Good job, Sharon. The book of Genesis. Put a pen in that because we're going to head there here in a minute. The tree of life is found in the book of Genesis. 
The tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. Now let's take a look at this and see what we're trying, what we're trying to gain from this text. 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. How many months are there? Is that normal? To have fruit 12, 12 months out of the year? So we're basically saying there's always fruit, right? Which is another way of saying what? If it, if it never goes away, if it never ends, who said everlasting? All right. Would you like a robin egg or you want a Reese's? Here. Eternity was what I was looking for. Good job, Michelle. This is a way of saying eternal. It's basically saying this is going on forever. There is no end. The fruit that comes from the river of life is eternal. It has no end. The leaves of the trees were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed. Another translation says it like this. The curse is no more. What curse are we talking about? All that is true. You all win. There you go. Who said death? You like this? Here, take two. They're small. Who, who, said, who said sin over here? Somebody else. Don't hit the baby. <laughs> Pass that back here for me, would you? Good job. You guys paid attention in Sunday school. They will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads. This is significant because to be able to look upon the face of God was impossible until now, right? This is what scripture teaches us leading up to this moment. That the sinless mortal man and God could not even occupy the same space because man would surely die. That's why there was always separation. Separation in the tabernacle. Separation with the ark. Separation in the holiest of holies where the, the big temple curtain was, was there to separate the holiest of holies from the rest of the temple. That curtain that was torn in two when Jesus Christ surrendered his life that we just sang about. Even Moses wasn't able to look on the face of God, but he tried. One day, God told Moses, you know what, you're a pretty good guy, Moses. Gave him an attaboy, gave him a little pat on the back. I'm telling you, you get a pat on the back from God, that means something. Moses was like, well, I'll tell you what, God, if, uh, since, we're, uh, since you're feeling good today, I'd like to know what you look like. I'd kind of like to see your face. God was like, mm, can't do that, I'm afraid. If I show you my face, you'll die. Kind of like the, uh, the, the old spy adage, I could tell you, but then I'd have to kill you. I could show you my face, but you'd die. Because you can't look upon the face of God. It's just too intense, too fascinating, too powerful. You would just, you would just fall and die. But what I, what I will do is I'll walk by, and when I say it's okay for you to look, you can just catch a glimpse, a train of my robe, just catch a glimpse of my glory. And that's what he was able to show Moses. So to be able to look on God's face, it, it tells us something, right? It, it tells us that the curse is ended. Sinful man is no more. We can occupy the same space, and we can look upon the face of God without fear. And then it says, night will be no more. There will be no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, 
and they will reign forever and ever. Now maybe this means, maybe this is literal, and maybe it means that there, is no more, there will be no more dark. Maybe it's just going to be light all the time. Or maybe it means that there's going to be no more darkness, meaning no more evil, no more bad stuff, no more bad days, no more tears in heaven, right? But the bottom line is, this, this text paints for us the image of perfection. This is what it was meant to be before we messed it up. This is what it was meant to be way back in the beginning. This closing description of the city of God is saturated with allusions to Old Testament prophecy and foreshadowing, and, and I, I'm, I'm excited because this is where we're heading. I want to show this to you this morning. So if you allow me to be your tour guide, <laughs> I would like to invite you to jump in the boat. And let's take a ride down the river of life. We're going to go all the way back to the Alpha, all the way back to the beginning in Genesis chapter 2. All right. I'm just going to read this to you. Now, the Lord God had planted a garden in the east, in Eden, which, by the way, Eden is Hebrew for paradise. It's not just a garden, okay? This is the source of all that is good. This is paradise, city of God. And there he put the man he had formed, the Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. In the middle of the garden were the what? And the tree of knowledge of good and evil. We don't see that anymore. Apparently, we don't need it anymore. A river watering the garden flowed from Eden, and from there it was separated into four headwaters. Now, it goes on to give names and directions, but the, the point of the rest of this verse is simply this. It goes to every corner of the earth. Okay, It goes north, south, east, and west. This river that flows from the source, from paradise, from Eden, covers the entire world. From these verses, we can extrapolate that the river in Genesis is symbolic as well of the Holy Spirit that flowed to all the parts of the sinless world. But this is when God said everything was good. God created the heavens and the earth. God created light. Let there be light, and there was. God created the, the, the seas and the oceans, and he, he made the waters recede, and he created dry land, and he put all the fishes in the sea, and made all the critters, all the creepy, crawly things, and he created man. And then he stepped back, and he said, what? He said, looks good to me. I'm going to take a nap. That's what he said. That all is good. But then something happened. All that was once good became not so good anymore. Okay, the, that's, that's when the fall occurred. They were told not to eat from the tree, but then they did anyway. Right? This is called the fall. They were told not to eat from the tree, but then they did. And this disobedience opened the door to what has since been called the curse, the fall of man. Now, this idyllic world where the river of life flows abundantly is now gone. And the world has become corrupted. No longer is the Spirit of God flowing like the river that it was from Eden. But yet, every now and then, we do get a glimpse of the Spirit of God through His powerful shows of force and the miracles, like in Exodus. Or in the existence of some key figures found in Scripture, like in the book of Judges, like Samson or Elijah. Or in some specific texts where we are told that the, that the Spirit resides in, and dwells in some of these people, like uh, Joshua, for example, that we find 
where here we see, the Lord said to Moses, take Joshua, the son of Nun, with you, a man in whom is the Spirit. And again, in Samuel 23, 2, this is David talking about himself. The Spirit of the Lord spoke by me, and his word was on my tongue. So we see these instances where these, uh, they're almost exclusive instances where we're, we're being told that the Spirit exists in these people, but why? Why, why make that point if the, if the Spirit exists everywhere? You see what I'm saying? A thousand years before John's revelation that we read, a thousand years before the book of Revelation was written, King David writes this from Psalm 46. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy place where the Most High dwells. God is within her. She will not fall. God will help her at break of day. Nations are in uproar. Kingdoms fall. He lifts his voice and the earth melts. The Lord Almighty is with us. The God of Jacob is with That was written a thousand years before John was exiled to Patmos. Almost 650 years before the book of Revelation was written, a little later from this, we, we find this text in the book of Ezekiel. Now bear with me. It's going to take me a minute to get there. Who likes Ezekiel? Oh, yeah. Good stuff. My dad used to tell me, you like Star Wars? Go read the book of Ezekiel. It's just like watching Star Wars. I went and read Ezekiel, and I'm like, this ain't nothing like watching Star Wars. But check it out. The man brought me back to the entrance of the temple, and I saw water coming out from under the threshold of the temple toward the east, where the temple faced the east. Now, that's, that's significant because they prayed. They prayed facing the east, okay? The water was coming down from under the south side of the temple, south of the altar. He then brought me out through the north gate and led me around the outside to the outer gate facing east. And the water was trickling from the south side. As the man went eastward with a measuring line in his hand, we got a tape measure. He's out of measuring stuff. He measured off a thousand cubits. How long is a cubit? What was the answer over here? <laughs> Depends on who you ask. If you look it up at Google, it'll tell you it's the distance from your elbow to your middle finger, which might be 18 inches. Probably more like... If you're a baby. Exactly, yeah. By the way, this has nothing to do with anything, but you know that your shoe size is the same as the inside of your elbow to your wrist? <laughs> it's a cubit, anyway. They're measuring cubits. And then he led me through water that was ankle deep, okay, just, just enough to get your feet wet. He measured off another thousand cubits, and he led me through water that was knee deep. Now we're up to here. We're waiting a little bit. He measured off another thousand, and he led me through water that was up to the waist. Next slide, please. He measured off another thousand, but now it was a river that I could not cross because the water had risen and was deep enough to swim in. A river that no one could cross. And he asked me, Son of man, do you see this? Then he led me back to the bank of the river. When I arrived there, I saw a great number of trees on each side of the river. And he said to me, This water flows toward the eastern region and goes down into Arabah where it enters the Dead Sea. When it empties into the sea, the salty water there becomes fresh. Swarms of living creatures will live wherever the water flows. There will be large numbers of fish because this water flows there and makes the salt water fresh. So where the river flows... Everything will live. Fishermen will stand along the shore from Engedi to Enegli. There will be places for spreading nets. The fish will be of many kinds like the fish of the Mediterranean Sea. Now, 
Some of you have been to the Dead Sea recently, right? Okay. Is there fish in there? No. So this, this isn't literal, right? Cle clearly this hasn't happened yet. But fruit trees, go to 12, fruit trees of all kinds will grow on both banks of the river. Their leaves will not wither, nor will their fruit fail. Every month they will bear fruit because the water from the sanctuary flows to them. Their fruit will serve for food and their leaves for healing. Again, an allusion to eternity. See, see these similarities? Do you see it? Now these are the words of Ezekiel the prophet written somewhere around 570 B.C., almost 650 years before John is exiled. Ezekiel is describing the same river of the waters of life that we read about in Revelation 22. This is the same river. Now check it out. Most scholars agree that these same waters signify the gospel of Jesus, the birth of the church in Ezekiel which went forth from Jerusalem and it spread itself into the countries and about little by little, slowly through the power of the Holy Spirit growing and growing, starting out ankle deep and then it grows to the point that you, can't, you have to swim. You can't wade across it anymore. It just keeps growing and growing. The gifts and the powers of the Holy Spirit accompanying it as it does. And what sparked the growth of the church? Where did that all begin? Remember what we call the birthday of church? Why? What happened then? Right. It all goes back to the Holy Spirit, right? The birth of the church, the Pentecost, Holy Spirit comes down on the people of God. But what's interesting here is unlike the revolution text, or excuse me, the revelation text, the Ezekiel text mentions a temple. The river flows from the throne of God and of the Lamb in Revelation. The river flows from Eden in Genesis, but in Ezekiel it flows from the temple. Now, that, that's kind of interesting because there was this whole thing about temple worship leading up to Jesus. Jesus kind of did away with that. In fact, if I'm not mistaken, I believe Jesus even referred to himself as the temple. Did he not? Let's go ahead and jump to the New Testament now. Let's keep floating on down the river. And let's turn to John chapter 2. Jesus answered them, destroy this temple, and I will raise it again in three days. And they replied, well, it's taken 46 years to build this temple, and you're going to raise it up in three days? But the temple he had spoken of was his body. The temple he was talking about was him. And after he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he said, and then they believed the scripture in the words that Jesus had spoken. Mm. So if Jesus is the temple, okay, then Jesus is the source of the living water of life. Does that sound about right? He basically states this again in John uh, chapter 4 when he talks to the woman at the well. And he says this, Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asked you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us this well and drank from it himself, as did also his sons and his livestock? And then Jesus answered, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, talking about the water in the well. But whoever drinks the water I give them 
will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Hmm. Here this living water comes from the same river of life we have been traveling down. The Spirit of God that was once hidden now through Christ is hidden no more and has become accessible again. Jesus says, come to me and drink. Drink from the river of life. Again, John chapter 7. On the last and greatest day of the festival, Jesus stood and said in a loud voice, let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as Scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. By this he meant the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were later to receive. Up to that time, up to that time, the Spirit had not yet been given since Jesus had not yet been glorified. So John is laying down the framework for what is to come. This is the birth of the church, when the Spirit comes, the Spirit comes back. And like I said, up to then, we saw, we saw glimpses of the Spirit, and we saw some foreshadowing of the Spirit, just like we did with, with Jesus. But, but they were rare and sometimes subtle. But like, like when God provided water in the desert. And we talked the other day about how when God, when the, when, the, when the Hebrews were wandering around the desert, how God provided for them. He gave them manna, and he gave them quail when they were hungry. And he also gave them water when they were thirsty. Where'd the water come from? It came from a rock, didn't it? Give that to Steve. I don't know if you guys know this, but rock is not a really good source of water. <laughs> but Moses took a staff, and he would tap it on the rock, and, and water come out. How cool is that? But it wasn't just water. It was also spiritual nourishment. He wasn't just giving them water to drink. He was giving them spiritual nourishment. This is the one that got me. 1 Corinthians. This is the words of Paul. And he's referring to this time in, in the history of Jewish history. For I do not want you to be ignorant of the fact, brothers and sisters, that our ancestors were all under the cloud and that they all passed through the sea. They were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. All this sounds familiar, right? They all ate the same spiritual food, and they drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that accompanied them. And that rock was who? Wow. You see, this, this chapter in Revelation, this, this final chapter in Scripture, paints for us through Christ, through Jesus, through the eyes of John, that this image of perfection. This is where we're heading. The image of heaven and earth completely restored. The curse is gone. The river of life is crystal clear and flowing like a strong river. It's, it's almost like the grand finale of some great concerto, right? It's, it's with, with the themes of this musical that have all sounded throughout it all are gathered up in the one last majestic, melodious bang. Here at the farthest point, in which mortal eyes are allowed to pierce and just catch a glimpse into the city of God, we see this tree of life once again that the very first set of mortal eyes that ever existed saw all those years before. And, and, and it waves its branches again and says, here I am. The end has circled all the way around to the beginning, the alpha and the omega. 
here in this last chapter of Scripture, the river, the, the music of, of whose ripple has been heard from Genesis through Ezekiel, through King David, I could go on and on and on, bringing life to everything that it flows through and making glad the city of God. Jesus says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. But here's the thing. This image is a beautiful image. But it doesn't mean that this river isn't accessible to us now. In fact, the living water is life-giving to us today. I mean, if you think about it, water is life, isn't it? The physical body can only live without water for so long. Who knows how long that is? Oh, Steve, man, you're going to get a cavity. <laughs> Pass that back to him, would you? Three days without water and you will die. I mean, you can go weeks without food. <laughs> you can go weeks without food or months if you're like me. That was a joke. <laughs> but three days without food can be fatal. Water is vital to our physical existence. But this living water, this water from the river of life is vital to our soul. And this living water is available to us today. The same water offered to the woman at the well and to the crowd that Jesus preached to at the temple is offered to us today, and it is not temporary. It's eternal. Jesus says if you drink, you will thirst no more. Talk about some quality H2O. And we see evidence of this everywhere we turn. Remember, we heard some of those stories from our last teaching series with the Holy Ghost stories. Evidence of how the river of life, how the Holy Spirit works through the lives of those of us and those who are around us through the church. But there are so many more we didn't get to hear. So many more stories we didn't get to share. But I want to share one with you this morning. Because this is fresh for me. You heard me talk last week about my buddy Doug. Doug was camping down Cades Cove Campground, Smoky Mountains, last week. They were just minding their own business in their tent. And all of a sudden, he heard a dad yell and scream because a tree just randomly fell on their tent and immediately killed a seven-year-old girl. Horrible story. Doug was their first responder. He called me to tell me this story to share with me, and he's telling me this in tears because he had experienced something really traumatic. His granddaughter was with him on this camping trip. They were just trying to have a family vacation. His granddaughter was seven years old. And uh, it, it, really, it really messed with him a little bit. I, 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 I can only imagine it with me and probably most of us, right? It's just a, just a heartbreaking story. But then the other day, I, I'm, I'm, I'm scrolling on Facebook, look of face. And my buddy Doug is on there, and he, and, he, and he shares this post. And I just want to share this with you. Today at lunch, a man in unusual dress approached the table next to mine and started a conversation. I purposely did not eavesdrop, thinking he might be the manager checking on customer satisfaction. When he turned to my table and addressed Cheyenne, that's his granddaughter, the seven-year-old granddaughter. When he turned to my table and addressed Cheyenne, I still thought him to be the manager. You taking care of your folks, young lady, he asked. But it wasn't until he produced a $1 bill that I realized he wasn't the manager at all. 
I then noticed a little girl at the table next to us clutching her $1 bill. The man spoke to me as he left the table, but I never understood what he said. I just nodded and choked back tears as I tried to say, God bless you, brother. And he goes on to say this. It's been a very heavy vacation, lots of grief. And this beautiful man brought me to tears. There is still good in the world. I never figured out his uniform, but I know who he was. I thought he was a manager. Mary thought he was the gardener. The message today teaches the Alpha and Omega, this river of life that has flown through every word of Scripture is this beautiful, dynamic force that comes from the throne of God. It flows through our space and time right now. It flows in us, and it is made evident through us, and it binds us together. I want to close with the last five verses from, from the Bible. We're this close. We might as well finish it. Read with me. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to give you this testimony for the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David and the bright morning star. The spirit and the bride say, come, and let the one who hears say, come. Let the one who is thirsty come, and let the one who wishes take the free gift of the water of life. I warn everyone who hears the words of this prophecy of this scroll, if anyone adds anything to them, God will add to that person the plagues described in this scroll. And if anyone takes words away from this scroll of prophecy, God will take away from that person any share in the tree of life and in the holy city which are described in this scroll. He who testifies to these things says, Yes, I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with God's people. Let's pray. God, yet again, your word just wows us. The symmetry, the consistency, just the way that your river flows from Genesis to Revelation and reveals to us the power of your Holy Spirit and the life-giving force that comes from the source, which is you and the power of the Lamb. We thank you. We pray, God, that you can just empower us now as we leave this place to find ways to share, to tap into the river, to go beyond knee-deep, to swim in it. And we thank you for uh, the gift of your son, Jesus Christ, that we come and we celebrate. And in this moment, as we prepare to celebrate together the sacrament of Holy Communion, we might remember that on the night that Jesus was betrayed, that he sat down with his friends at a table to share a meal. How Jesus took the bread and he lifted it and he gave thanks and he said, take and eat. This is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And then likewise, he took the cup and after giving thanks, he said, take and drink. This is my blood, the blood of the new covenant shed for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. So God, we ask that you pour out your Holy Spirit on these gifts of bread and cup.
Make them be for us the body and blood of Christ, that we might be for your world, your body redeemed by your saving blood. We ask this in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. I once heard Holy Communion described as a living stream. A living stream that represents every saint that has come before us and is yet to come. And every time we come and we gather and we celebrate communion, we step into the stream and we become part of something much bigger than us. We become part of something much bigger than us individually. We become part of something much bigger than revolution. We become part of something much bigger than the church in the 21st century. We become part of something that is eternal. I want you to approach this this morning maybe through that lens and just, and just allow that to uh, just, just to wear in your, in your heart and your soul today. That we don't just share something individually, but we share with something that is eternal. He's had a long week. Hi. I wanted to take um, a few minutes, and I know y'all don't mind praying a little bit more. Um, so first and foremost, if we have any uh, students or teachers um, that are going to be starting school this next week, if you want to stand where you are or if you want to come forward, um, I do know we have two new kids to Revolution Kids Church um, that we want to celebrate, Cruz and Kennedy. If you want to stay where you are, you are more than welcome. If you want to come up here, I have your Bible. And if you all could join me as we pray over not only them, but all the students coming back uh, to school and all the teachers and faculty. And I know we have a lot of folk. You can come up too, Luca. It's cool. We're not Okay. So if y'all wouldn't mind uh, just praying with me here. God, we thank you for the gift of these children um, all over. Uh, as they prepare to start this new year or maybe even their first year of school, um, may grace be their guide and hope uh, lead them towards their bright future. We pray that uh, we know that they have a heart for love and to love well, uh, but may they face each new day with that confidence that no matter what, what's going on, that they are not alone. God, I also pray for our teachers now that you would prepare their hearts, uh, grant them grace, courage, uh, strength when they feel weak, um, when they feel unseen. God, remind them that no moment goes unnoticed by you. Uh, remind them that uh, they are shaping this future um, in incredibly important ways, and God, bless them all in your faithfulness. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, and one last prayer, guys. I know y'all don't mind. Um, we all know that Miss Mona is going through some health things right now. And uh, we love her. And she is with us this morning. Um, be starting some treatments in the next week to come. So if you all don't mind extending a hand in her direction, if you are at home, you are welcome to pray with us. 
um, sending her all of our love here. Oh, gracious God, you are rich. You are rich in love and full of so much tenderness. God, right now, we unite our hearts with you. And Lord, we pray for your presence and your peace and protection over Mona and her family. God, come. Come with your power. Come with your presence. Come and bring healing, Lord. And God, may your love, oh, may your love bring peace. We pray these things and many, many more. In the mighty name of your son, Jesus, and all God's people said, amen. All right. I don't think I can say anything else. So, y'all know how to do it. Come back next week with your backpack, your laptop. We're going to give you something to take with you as you can remember the love that not only your church has for you, but uh, our gracious Heavenly Father. So come back next week with your things. Now go and be the revolution. <laughs>